Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. So we've worked our way through about a third of John's Gospel at this point, and today we begin uh, chapter 8 with a powerful encounter listed in Scripture. It's Jesus uh, and how he handles the situation uh, with the woman who was caught in adultery. And so um, if you would follow along as I begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin pray. Lord, I thank you for just the, the truth that's in your word, for the power that's in your word. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that are tender and sensitive to receive the truth from your word. Lord, I pray that that truth would set us free and make us to be more like Jesus. Amen? Now, before we get into the text, I'd like to address a footnote. Some most of us don't carry Bibles anymore. Anybody remember the day when you had to have a Bible with you? Some of us carried Bibles and notebooks. I used to have you know, like a Bible holder and notebooks and pens and stickers and all kinds of stuff in there. Well, now we just kind of look at it on the screen. But if you're looking in your Bible, at the end of chapter 7, or maybe at the beginning of verse 8, there's a footnote that might capture your attention. And it basically says this. The earliest manuscripts... And many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 to 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part. After John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 21:38, or Luke 24:53. I figure since the footnote is in there, it'd be worthy taking just a moment or two at the beginning to explain it. From the manuscript evidence available currently available, it seems unlikely that John 7, verses 53, it's the end of John 7, through John 8, 11, the text that I'm looking at today, was, it seems unlikely that it was part of the original text of John's Gospel. Or at least, it wasn't in this place. Uh, the majority of ancient Greek manuscripts omit this section. Many later manuscripts mock this section with an asterisk. Some manuscripts located differently. One group uh, of manuscripts inserts it after Luke 21, 38. A few after the section 
uh, have this section after John 21, 24, and one has it after John 7, uh, 36. So what does this mean? I think all this reveals to us that the ancient scribes were unaware of its exact position in the gospel. In other words, I think they felt like, hey, it belonged. They just didn't know exactly where. And so I think that's the main reason why we have this footnote. They believed that this account belongs in the text. There was, it just wasn't certainty on exactly where in the storyline to put it. Um, some ancient Christians like um, Augustine and Ambrose omitted the story altogether, not because they thought there wasn't enough uh, evidence for it to be there, but because I think they, they kind of felt it, it made Jesus look weak on moral issues. And so they just, they just left it out. You know, I guess they were as guilty of you know, keeping the parts of Scripture they liked and omitting the others as much as any of us, right? However, most scholars note that it is real, this text today that I'm going to speak on is both historical and factual. Early Christian writers mention this event as soon as the early 2nd century, 100 AD. So we have every reason to believe that this, is, that this actually happened and that John really did write it. And in my humble opinion, I think it fits for those reasons and for this. It sounds like something that the Jesus John describes to us, it sounds just like something he would do. It, it, it fits with the, the narrative. It fits with the character that's being portrayed. It fits with the way that he interacts with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and how he treats people. Okay. So I just thought you know, it was fair to address that. So on to, um, on to John 8, verses 1 and 2. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Now, you know, I'm not sure, but if Jesus had a favorite place during his earthly life, I'm thinking the Mount of Olives is, is clearly one of them. He spent a lot of time there. Um, give you some examples. He often traveled over the Mount of Olives on his way to Bethany to visit his friend Lazarus and his, his sisters Mary and Martha. Um, his end-time prophetic word from, from Matthew 24 was given from the Mount of Olives. The triumphal entry of Jesus riding on a donkey uh, into Jerusalem took place over and down the Mount of Olives. That's in Luke 19. Jesus prayed there with his disciples just before his arrest. In Luke 22, the Garden of Gethsemane is located at the lowest slope of the Mount of Olives. It's where Jesus was arrested. It's where Peter struck off the ear of the, um, the servant of the high priest and where Jesus miraculously healed him and reattached uh, the ear. Uh, Jesus appeared to his disciples on the Mount of Olives after his resurrection, and it's from the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascended into heaven. I get the impression that this was a favorite place of his, that it was a, a favorite place for him to pray. you have a favorite place to pray? You know, Nadine and I have moved around a lot. So I've, almost everywhere we've lived, I've tried to find a place where I like to pray. <clears throat> now, sometimes, honestly, the, the, that place for me is sitting with my legs crossed on my, on my bed. It's just a great place to pray. Sometimes it's a dining room table. I'll just honest with you, I've had some amazing encounters with God in both places. However, there are times I love to walk out in nature. I love to be surrounded by the beauty of creation. 
especially if I can do that alone and by myself, and I can talk to him like I'm talking to you right now, I don't know, it just works for me. There's, there truly is life on that for me. So I like to find my favorite places to pray. seems like Jesus had one. You might consider trying to find one for yourself as well. So what else do we see in verses 1 and 2? Jesus still has a very public ministry. In spite of the fact that the chief priests and the Pharisees have made it very clear that they want to kill him, Jesus continues his very public ministry, and he's doing it in, in the temple courtyards. It's just a common place for people to gather. And it says here that he sat down to teach. I kind of like that. It works for me. I like to sit down when I teach. I know it's, it's different than what probably most preachers do today, but I like sitting down. And, um, I took a look at Matthew Henry's commentary on, on that verse there, re referencing sitting down. He says, he sat down and taught as one having authority and as one that intended to abide by it for some time. So that meant he was just going to talk for a long time. <laughs> so if I sit down, it might be an indication to you that I'm going to talk a lot. <laughs> Additionally, take note, verse 2 says, all the people gathered around him. Now, right here is the uh, point of contention, this constant point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus' popularity among the masses is perceived uh, by the by the chief priests, by the, the teachers of the law, by the Pharisees, as a threat. They see it as a threat to their, to their position and to their power. It, it's, a, it's a threat to their, their base of political and religious power. If they're following Jesus and listening to what he's saying, they're no longer following them, and their power base shrinks. Jesus is a threat to them. And so because of this, and this is really the main reason why they want to kill him, is his popularity, his influence, the, the fact that he's changing things. I shared earlier from Isaiah 43, 19, where God says to the prophet Isaiah, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? This is that. This is exactly that. God came, and he does a new thing. And guess what? The religious people of the day, they did not perceive it. He's doing a new thing. That's the God that we have. He shows up and does new things, and sometimes we miss it. They were missing it, and they were threatened by his presence, by Jesus' presence. So they, they set a trap. Verses 3 to 6. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know the story. We know how it all ends. But I have to ask the question, how horrifically deceived do you have to be, especially as a religious leader, to set up someone who disagrees with you. How incredibly deceived do you have to be? Where's the morality in that? But, but that's not even the worst of it. It gets much, much worse. To get the upper hand in their theological debate, to secure their position of power, they literally put this woman's life at risk. How deceived do you have to be in order to be right in your opinion 
to put a woman's life at risk. And make no mistake, things could have ended very badly that day for this woman. So they set this trap for Jesus, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They're the ones who set this trap. The religious professionals of the day, they're the ones who set this trap. And they think they have Jesus in some kind of you know, no-win situation. If Jesus says, let her go, it seems like he breaks the law of Moses. If he says, execute her for the crime of adultery, then Jesus seems harsh before the people, and he breaks Roman law, because at this point, Rome had taken away uh, the Jews' right to officially execute people for religious offenses. David Guzik, in his commentary on John 8, asked the question. He says, did they really execute people for adultery in Israel? And here's his answer. It's true that adultery was a capital offense under Jewish law, but the rules of evidence in capital cases were extremely strict. The actual act had to be observed by multiple witnesses who agreed exactly in their testimony. So as a practical matter, virtually no one was executed for adultery since this was a private sin. These wretched, evil, wicked men used this poor woman as a weapon against Jesus. They don't give a rip about actual righteousness here. It's a setup. She's just a pawn. And I gotta tell you, as a man, <laughs> it makes me angry. It makes me furious. Now, I was raised in a house with, I had a little sister. I have a sister who's 10 years younger than me. And we were raised to protect her, no matter what. My sister had three of the biggest bodyguards in the neighborhood. You know, it was just, it was just what we were supposed to do. You would never put your hand on a woman. You would never use her for, for your own personal gain. Your responsibility, your role, your position was to, was to cover her, was to protect her, was to support her, was to treat her like gold. And so I read this, and oh, I got to tell you, man, it just fires me up. It touches something deep down in me. Now, get this. They claim that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. King James Version takes that verse 4, and it says it this way. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. In the very act? In the ver what does that mean, in the very act? How do you catch somebody in the very act? Were you peeking in a window? Were you hiding behind the curtains? And by the way, where's the man? <laughs> where's the man in this deal? They, they drag her out in front of all the people, humiliating her. And look, to my understanding, adultery is not a solitary act, right? There's got to be somebody else involved here. Where's the other? Where's the guy? Could it be? I'm speculating here. I have no evidence to prove this. But to catch her in the very act, could it have been one of their number that brought her forward? Were they, was, the, was one of these guys, these religious, was, it, was that the, the other person? I don't know. To catch him in the very act sounds like you've got to be, if you're not in the room, you, if you have to witness it, I don't know. There's more questions than answers. I, I have no other way to consider how you resolve the in the very act question. However, Whoever this man was, it's clear that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, though they could see other people's sin clearly, 
They were absolutely blind to their own sin. They think they're justified in doing this. Matter of fact, they think it's going to give them the upper hand against this, this upstart itinerant who's, who's stealing away their flock. And, they, and so they, they can justify this action and not see the horrificness of their own sin. Astonishing. But sobering at the same time. Isn't there a little bit of Pharisee in all of us? You know when we discover that we have some Pharisee in us? It's when our sacred cow gets barbecued. That's when we get fired up. If I, if I barbecue their sacred cow, oh, that's good, we got lunch. If I barbecue your sacred cow, now you get upset. I don't like it when people barbecue mine either. I don't think we all got a little bit of, If they could be that deceived, you know, that's the issue with deception. The problem with being deceived is you don't know. You're deceived. <laughs> you, th you, think you're, you think you're good. When you're not, they thought they were doing the right thing. It's, it's scary. What I love about this is Jesus doesn't take the bait. I love that he doesn't allow them to dictate his response. Verse 6 tells us Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground. King James Version adds, as though he heard them not. Jesus ignores them as if he never even heard them. Why did he ignore them? Why did he... Why did he step down on the ground and begin to write with his finger. Some commentators think it's because he despised them. Others say that he was embarrassed for the woman's sake. Still others say that he was horrified at what these men did to her. I'm kind of in line with that third, although all three of those worked for me. Sometimes, sometimes when we're faced with a deceiving religious spirit, manifesting in a rabidly self-righteous individual, the best thing we can do is shut our mouths and shake our heads. Let me say that again. Sometimes when faced with a religious spirit manifesting in a rabidly self-righteous individual, all you could do is shut your mouth and shake your head in disbelief. So Jesus wrote on the ground. What did he write? Many have speculated. Boy, there's lots of Lots of theories out there about what Jesus wrote on the ground. There's no biblical proof to reveal to us exactly what he wrote. There are some interesting theories out there. If, if you're curious about it, I encourage you to do your own research. Some think maybe he, he was writing down the sins of the accusers with their names next to it. <laughs> I'm wondering if he was writing down the names of their mistresses. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Maybe he's a scribbling. I don't know. He could have been following a Roman judicial practice, which was to write out a sentence before pronouncing it. I'm not sure. Maybe he scribbled scripture. Like I'm thinking Ezekiel 23, 1 would be perfect. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. That would have been a good scripture verse to scribble in the sand at that moment, don't you think? But whatever he wrote, he eventually stopped. And he stood to address them. Verses 7 and 8. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I love this. I love this. You know, they think they have him trapped. And with a phrase, he just turns it all around on them. You know, it doesn't seem riled at all. It doesn't... I mean, I read this text, I'm thinking, man, Jesus is cool. He, 
He's just the epitome of coolness right here. Here's an intense situation, right? They're trying to embarrass him publicly. He just hand, he's smooth, man. Just smooth. <laughs> but any of you without sin, you're the first to throw a stone at him. He steps on the ground, goes down the ground, starts scribbling on the ground. Thinking, that's awesome. I'm thinking Fonzie would have done it that way. <laughs> Dating myself. <laughs> now, in Jewish law, it was the witness to the capital offense that had the responsibility to begin the stoning. So when Jesus said, let any one of you without sin uh, be the first to throw a stone at her, he could have been asking uh, for the witness. You know, just maybe the, the second half of this uh, joint sin activity. But I think it was more than that. And this is my own unique take on this. I think Jesus was demonstrating extravagant mercy and amazing grace toward the teachers of the law and the Pharisees right here. I really do. I think he's showing them, I think he's exercising astonishing restraint and being merciful and gracious toward them. Though they hated him and wanted to kill him, and though they horrifically abused this woman, shaming her publicly, Jesus still extends to them great love. No doubt. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he has all knowledge. He could have used his revelatory gifts, and he could, he could have, re, just like they revealed her sin, he could have revealed all of their sins in the moment. He could have said to them, hey, chief priest, I know what you were doing on Tuesday morning, and I know who you were doing it with. Anybody ever been in a, <laughs> thank God, have you ever been in a, Pentecostal or charismatic meeting and there's a prophet there and he's calling out people's sins. Holy cow. People diving under their chairs, you know. That guy never gets invited back. <laughs> Jesus could have done that. Because he knew. He could have called them on all of it. He could have shamed them like, he, like they shamed her. I think he's exercising astonishing restraint. But you know what? He isn't like them. He's not playing their game. He doesn't play by their rules. Instead, he gives them the choice he, they never gave her. To quietly walk away. Privacy intact. Now that's mercy. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserved. Man, they deserved it. I think in one sentence, Jesus communicates and demonstrates the truth of another powerful portion of Scripture. This one from Luke 6, verses 37 to 42. Tell me, I think this fits so well. Let me read it to you. In Luke 6, 37, Jesus says, Do not judge, and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. A good measure. Press down, shaken together running over, will be poured into your laps. For the measure you use, it will be the measure to you. And he told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pen? I like verse 40. The student is not above the teacher, but anyone who is fully trained will be like this teacher, like their teacher. Could Jesus at that point be trying to make a statement to the disciples of the Pharisees, you're going to be just like them. And we know from this text in John 8 that there's old and young there, right? 
So there are senior Pharisees, people with senior positions as teachers of the law, and they have younger disciples with them. You become like those who disciple you. Is this a warning to them? The student, verse 40, the student is not above their teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourselves fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The, re- the reality is that with the exception of Jesus, not a person in attendance that day in the temple courts was without sin. They were all sinners. There was n- the only one who could have chucked a stone that day was Jesus. He was the only one without sin, and he chose not to. There would be no stone throwing that day. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Why did they leave in that order? Why did the older ones leave first and then the younger ones? My, my sincere hope is that with age comes wisdom. I know as a young Christian, I had truckloads of zeal. I had more passion and zeal than I knew to do it. It oozed out everywhere. It was really pretty messy. Zeal needs to be tempered with wisdom. And as we get older, that happens. Usually, hopefully, with maturity. I'm hoping that that's the case here. I don't know. That maybe the older ones, maybe their eyes are open with Jesus' statement. They can see the errors of, of, the, of their ways. It could be that. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. It could just be a social dynamic that the youngers follow the, the lead of the olders. They would wait until the, the senior person there made it, took an action, and then to stay in his good graces, they take the same action. You know, they're taking their cues from the senior members in attendance. Maybe the oldest left first because they most easily understood that Jesus was talking about them. Some commentators think this. I think Chuck Smith had some kind of variation of this, that beginning with the oldest, that, and it would have been the highest-ranking Pharisee there, uh, that Jesus was writing their sin in the sand. And they began to walk away, and then he would wipe that away and then go to the next oldest person there, <laughs> scribble their sin in the sand, and they walked away. And then he erased it, and then he went through the whole line. I, I don't know, but interesting theory. So un- oldest to youngest until... They all left. No one really knows for sure why. You know, Jesus could have easily shamed these men publicly. And if he had, I would have cheered. I would have. I tell you, this story makes me furious. There's something in me. It was the way I was raised. The guys are supposed to protect the girl, period. That's just the way it is. And watching them take advantage of her, if he had shamed them publicly, I'd have stood on my chair and cheered. But he didn't. That's because Jesus is much better than me. He's much better than them. He just let them walk away. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and asked a woman, 
Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. With her accusers gone, there was no one left to condemn the woman. Certainly not Jesus. It just brings to mind some wonderful scripture verse that I think is good for us to remind ourselves with today. Do you remember John chapter 3, verse 17? We covered that months ago. It says this, For God did not send his Son in the world, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you remember that? Somehow in our Christian training being raised, we see God as the, and his Son as the angry judge who's ready to hammer us at any time we color outside the lines. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Wow. Didn't he just prove that here with this woman caught in adultery? In John chapter 8? Or how about Romans 1 8? Paul seems to get it. Where he writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, that's good news. Or James 2.13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. Guys, that's really good news. That's good news, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we watch Jesus do this today, not only with the woman. Of course he did that with the woman. That's what my Jesus would do. He would protect her. Of course he did that. But he even extended mercy to those who didn't deserve mercy. She, in her circumstances, man, mercy's the right thing for her, right? But he extended mercy even to those who had no reason to expect mercy. Or deserve mercy. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you desperately need mercy, but you don't deserve it? You have no right to expect it. And you're in the right place. You're serving the right God. <laughs> His mercy triumphs over judgment. Because no matter where you're at today, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And when he's talking... When he says that, he's not talking about the dirt. He's talking about the people. He's talking about you and me. That's good news. Mercy does triumph over judgment. It did that day, especially for that woman, but not her alone. So, what's our Monday morning takeaway? I think we have Monday morning takeaway for, for others and for ourselves. So for the other people in your life, Consider this. Let's throw away our stones. There's somebody in our life, I'm sure you'd like to just bean them. And you could probably get some friends to help you. Let's, let's throw away our stones. Let's not throw them at anyone. Let's just drop them. Let's just drop the stones. We have a choice. We always have a choice. I say... Concerning those people in our lives that have done us wrong, maybe they falsely accused us, maybe they shamed us. Maybe they set us up. Maybe they're making us look bad so they can look good. Let's choose not to judge them. How about this? Concerning those people, and maybe you've got somebody's face in your mind's eye right now. Let's look at this this week as an opportunity just for the next seven days as an opportunity to practice mercy. 
but for someone, for some situation, where you can give to someone what they don't deserve. Give them mercy. It's the Jesus thing to do. It's what he would do. And concerning yourself, our Monday morning takeaway, there's no condemnation. Jesus demonstrates it. He, he reveals it to us beautifully in today's text. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. I don't care how vile your sin. I don't care how deep your pit. I got good news for you today. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have good news for you today. God loves you. He loves you lavishly and extravagantly. God is for you. And he's with you. How do I know he's with you? Because in his word, he said that he would be with us always, that he would never leave us or forsake us. And we can trust him and his word. A Monday morning takeaway for yourself is this, that he's not written you off, that he has not condemned you. He didn't condemn her, and he doesn't condemn you. It's not why he came. My encouragement for you Tomorrow morning, throughout the week, is to remind yourself of that truth. The profound reality that he does not condemn you. Remind yourself of that. Do it daily. Do it. Take, this is my prescription for you. <laughs> Take as needed. Remember that he loves you. Remember that he's good, that he's for you, that he does not condemn you. That's a settled position. It never changes. It's who he is. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, for this amazing account and for the, for the mercy, Lord, that you extended not only to this woman, Lord, but to those who had no reason to expect it or deserve it. You truly are an amazing God. Your ways are not our ways. They are so much higher than our ways. So, Lord, we come before you today and we... We make a choice. We drop our stones. We drop them. We let them go. We choose to forgive our accusers. And, and Lord, we ask that some of these people have treated us like enemies. Lord, knowing that we forgive our accusers, we ask that you'd bless them today. What they really need is you. Those who sinned against us, Lord, knowing that we forgive them, but we ask that you would bless them. Bless them with your presence that you would so touch them with your mercy and your grace and your love that their lives would be transformed. Let them have more of you, O oh God. And Lord, we pray for ourselves. Make us more like you. Give us your heart. We can love other people the way you love, that we can extend mercy the way you extend mercy, that we can be gracious to others it's in the same way you've been gracious to us. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Oh, God is so good.